everybody. You're listening to the Big Chill Podcast. This is episode 419, the slap that rocked the world. Hello, Big Chillians. Welcome back to the Big Chill Podcast. I'm Frank, joined as always with Eddie. Eddie, how's it going? Keep my name out of your mouth, Frank. That's the uh, <laughs> first thing I'll tell really you. Really difficult in the two-person podcast. <laughs> Is hey you better? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's I prefer that. It's much more respectful. But now, yeah, everything's all right. Yeah, I'm uh, recovering. I had a rough Monday. I played in a another roller hockey tournament this weekend, but this was a more legitimate one playing against the university's club team which is preparing for nationals and they are i I don't i don't even understand (laughs) how that's a thing it's just like like it's just the equivalent of instead of ice hockey there's roller hockey no no, i understand the concept of roller hockey my point is how are there university national tournaments like this is one step above a sort of quidditch tournament for me how I'm not saying that these people just because it's like I mean, don't you have rugby really, sevens and 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 rugby union? But rugby sevens is like a legitimate sport. I mean, to an extent, so is roller hockey, like it, of that yeah. equivalent. There, there's professional rugby sevens players. It's an Olympic sport. That's like a that's a real sport. But there's not rugby union Olympics. So that's deceiving. No, but there's, no, but there's, there's <laughs> you're twisting things on that in that analogy. <laughs> no, no, but it would be like saying, I mean, there are. I mean, it's an American like in- sport for sure. Like, obviously, you, you, I, I think the reason you don't think of it as legitimate is in Europe, it doesn't really exist. What roller hockey? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it probably does. I'm assuming. I mean, I'm assuming people in Scandinavia might play it. Although bandy is really popular in in Sweden and things, but I don't know. It's just I can understand someone playing it, and I can understand why you play it, and I can understand it as an alternative to people either playing year round hockey if you know they don't have access to rinks all the time or whatever it is. But it's strange to me that I mean. There's no reason to be playing that. Like, what's the logic behind playing this over playing ice hockey at a, com- a super competitive level? Like, if you're a really good roller hockey player, why it's, wouldn't you just be going? And if you're 18 years old and you're playing university, going to the nationals, why wouldn't you just be playing ice hockey? I would say it's it's a little different style. So it suits people who probably aren't as physical. You know, like smaller kids or skinnier kids or kids who don't like getting concussions and getting hit all the time. <laughs> um, it's a lot easier and it's a lot cheaper to play, too. I mean, that's obviously another reason why I think a lot of people play, especially in like California and, and places in the Southwest, for sure, too. But I mean, like again, the same thing. Why would you play Rugby Sevens over Rugby Union? Well, I mean, most people who play Sevens also play Rugby Union. I would say so, a majority I mean, that, of rollers also play ice and just so, happen I mean, to be better at one. I don't know why yeah. you've latched onto rugby sevens as being the parallel because I think it's a really bad comparison. Why? I think, probably be I think it's because, actually a pretty good comparison because the style in sevens is a lot more quicker format versus rugby union, I feel, is a lot more like 
direct hitting, a lot more physical. Yeah, I mean, rugby seven is a little bit less physical because there's just not as many players on the field. So same as hockey, same as roller. (laughs) But but, the difference is in rugby sevens, you're still the fundamental. You know, you're still playing on the same. The dimensions are exactly the same. The it's just a reduced number of players, and then obviously tweaks to the rules because you obviously can't have like a scrum when you only have seven players on the on the on the pitch. But the difference is, roller hockey you're playing on a different surface. You're not wearing ice skates, obviously. So like there, those are the those are the big differences. It's not it's not like you're going and playing like three v three ice hockey, which would be the parallel to. Uh, sevens you're you're playing it's as if we said let's go play indoor rugby like touch i think the better comparison would be flag football versus america like an american football what about and indoor soccer me, versus but again, again it's like no because the fundamentals of the sport are the same or what about arena football versus nfl no, let's go flag football. You're not going to like the comparison, but to me, it's flag football versus real football. And if someone told me they were going to go and play in, which probably exists. I'm sure that the, I'm you, 100% sure it exists. There's like a national competition for university flag football teams. And I'm sure the people who get to that level are really athletic. So I'm not, you know, like I'm sure the standard is super high, but it still would blow my mind if someone told me, if I asked someone like, what are you doing next week? Oh, I'm representing the University of Iowa, and I'm going to play in the National Flag Football Championship. I'd still kind of have my mind blown. Well, you can come out here and you can you can watch the level and, and see for yourself. I've seen the level. I watched you on a live stream when you were in Vegas or wherever that was. I've seen what it looks like. No, I'm, this, and I'm not knocking. I mean, they, they were way better than those teams. I'm not knocking the talent level. You know what I mean? Like. And, you know, I'm a big believer anyway. Once you get past, like, 27, 28 years old and you're playing any organized competitive level of sport, that's already kind of good because most people just give up at a certain moment. But also, if you do keep going with competitive sport past that age, no matter how amateur it is, there's always going to be one or two pretty talented people taking part just because of the fact that's all they've got left. If you see what I mean, like no matter how crappy your league is, there's going to be one or two people within it who, well, this is where I've ended up and it's better than nothing. Well, maybe I'll go find us uh, the best pro roller hockey player. We can get him on the podcast. We can discuss the semantics. I would still want to know what qualifies as a professional roller hockey player. Are there people (laughs) out there who are salaried roller hockey players? Or are you just saying there's prize money on offer? But there's like a team. There's like the the Tucson Tigers playing some paying some guy three thousand dollars. I don't know a month. enough about it to really. I've never really looked into it that deep. There's professional leagues, but I don't know if they're salaried or if it's prize money. I don't know what it would be. I would shoot for prize money. Yeah, it would. Yeah, it would surprise me. But. Because the way that the 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 teams that I know that we've played against, they have like tryouts. And they put together an A squad, like a B squad, and like a C team, and then go to the various tournaments and play. So I'm assuming what they do is it's like a like a little club has their team, puts together their best team, and tries to win the tournament for prize money. Well, that's five minutes on 
semi-professional roller hockey. That's a topic I didn't <laughs> think we'd go into that level of detail on. <laughs> yeah, not bad. <laughs> Want to pick another obscure? Uh, you picked on Quidditch. Should we talk about Quidditch? <laughs> no. I it's mean, 100, that's 100% a club national collegiate yeah. sport. And that's the saddest I've thing seen in it. the world. That's the saddest thing in the world. Like, I'm yeah. I'm not knocking being a huge Harry Potter fan. I, I'm personally not. Just never, never but interacting. But it makes no sense because the whole concept of Quidditch is you're in the air on a broom. <laughs> yeah. So instead, you're just running around with a broom between your legs. It's the saddest thing I've ever seen when I watch the people play it. Even at my university, there was a Quidditch team. And every once in a while, you'd kind of be on the way to class and you'd see them out in the field just running around with brooms between their legs. And it's so sad. I mean, it really is to the point where I almost feel like those people need help because you're basically behaving like a five-year-old <laughs> just imagining a universe in your sort of, you know, your the fort you've built in your living room. You're doing that, but as a person in their late teens or potentially even early 20s. Well, we've lost that one subscriber who plays Quidditch and has been waiting for us to talk about the Quidditch pros. <laughs> that would actually, I mean, that would be another one I would be interested to know. I don't even know how hard it is, if you see what I mean. Like, I'd be interested to see what's the difference between the best Quidditch player in the world and just a random person who sticks a room between their legs and tries to play Quidditch. Like, what is the skill level there? There's got to be a really mean joke in there somewhere, but I don't, I don't have the time to come up with it. Well, speaking of mean jokes that people may or may not Ooh. have had the time to come up with, there's our smooth transition of the day. I guess we can go to a non-sports topic uh, and, and talk about the Oscars controversy, which is taking the world by storm. In the past 48 hours pretty much has been the lead story on every network and news outlet I, I visit. And that is the, this, well, Will Smith going on stage to slap Chris Rock after he made a, a joke about Jada Pinkett Smith's alopecia, well, her shaved well, head, which unclear as to whether. Head. Yes, yeah. unclear whether he knew. She's been pretty open about it. And she's been open in the sense that she seems comfortable about it like she herself has made jokes about it on instagram and her social media accounts it you know it's something that she's been really open and and seemingly okay with but whether chris rock knew all this or not i have no idea no and he and, is not saying <laughs> and you'd have to assume yeah which is the the fact that he's been silent now maybe he's just trying to let the dust settle and hope everything passes even though according to reports, his ticket sales for his upcoming tour have skyrocketed. Skyrocketed. So <laughs> this is this has worked for him. But maybe he is just trying to not be involved in the story himself. But it is surprising that he it, it makes you think that he was aware of the fact that it was alopecia related, that he hasn't just come out and said, Hey, I'm very sorry. It was just a joke, but I didn't realize there was a larger issue behind it. I thought it was just a fashion choice. but Or potentially he just thinks, hey, it's just a joke and I don't need to defend it either way because it wasn't that mean-spirited and it wasn't that sort of horrific of a joke. So I actually don't need to say whether I knew or not because 
even if they didn't enjoy yeah. the joke, all they should have done was not laugh and moved on, and it wouldn't have even been a story. Yeah. Or C, he knew that she was okay with it and thought it wouldn't be a big deal to throw a light joke about it, you know, not something crazy obscene or degrading or anything like that. Yeah, you could even try and argue that if anything, I mean, in referencing G.I. Jane, maybe even a semi-empowering joke, right? Several people made this comment that they'd love to be referred to, to Demi Moore in her in her kind of like peak career mode there of G.I. Yeah. Jane. It's not as if he compared her to some, you know, unattractive image or a weak image. So if you, even if he was aware of it and he was making the reference, you could kind of say in terms of owning the condition, it's, it's actually probably a positive comparison. Now I'm not going to give Chris Rock too much credit. I think fundamentally. He, he, he didn't call her George Costanza. No, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but, and, and that, you know, that is also the interesting thing in dealing. I, I, I guess we can get into our larger thoughts on the topic before I get into the reaction to what Will Smith did in terms of the joke itself and people, how people have dealt with it subsequently. So many people keep talking about her with alopecia as if she is dealing with some life threatening illness that Chris Rock has touched on. Now, perhaps there are larger medical concerns unrelated to the alopecia that might be more of an issue for her that might also make it more upsetting. Who knows? But that's a, you know, just a box of unknowns that's impossible to address. But in some of the reaction where people have been defending her not finding it funny and Will Smith going up to defend her seemingly, people talk about it as if alopecia is this, you know, as if she had stage four cancer or AIDS and, you know, oh, poor her having to deal with this horrific illness. Now, admittedly, can't be easy, particularly as a woman. I do understand that element, but it's not the worst thing in the world, right? On the scale of issue, medical issues you could you could have to deal with, it is one of the lighter ones. So I found that reaction a little bit odd overall. But and and similarly, if he if he if it had been, and this isn't to say it's obviously different between men and women. If it had been a man, no one would have thought twice. If it had been George, you know, like whatever his name is, the actor who plays George Costanza, who I... Jason Alexander. Exactly. If it had just been him sitting there and it had been a, a joke about that, no one would have said, oh, Chris Rock is really mean. I would have just been like, oh, yeah, well, that's the joke you make about him. So I, I do find that a little bit strange. You've seemingly quite th- thought quite a bit about this. The coverage has been nonstop. So I've been bombarded on social media, in, including on social media platforms I would not expect to be bombarded on, even LinkedIn. I mean, so much oh, of LinkedIn. Oh, you're talking about Tinder? <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> I changed my profile picture. So much, of, so much of LinkedIn is virtue singling now that I guess it doesn't surprise me. But, you know, Literally, BBC, CNN, every news network I follow or look at, it's been nonstop coverage. I've also hated the other reaction, which is people trying to say, hey, isn't it annoying that we're paying so much attention to this thing that happened to the Oscars when there are so many more serious topics going on? Because look, we, for the most part, the people who are engaged with the news and who do care about things, 
they're still, it's not as if we've forgotten that there's a war in Ukraine going on or a conflict in Yemen, you know, like it's okay for people every once in a while to discuss a lighter hearted topic without being reminded that the world is a worse place because yeah. I'm and sure it's, the well, people- it's, it's, it's also to that, like, it doesn't have to be one or the other. Why can't it be both? Like it's, it's always that age old thing of, you know, like instead of, uh, sheltering the homeless. Why don't we care about the veterans? You're disregarding the veterans. Like, no, we can do both. Like it's not an either or, you know, like people yeah. love to do things like that. But yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I It's going to get, it's going to get covered. It's the one of the biggest nights in entertainment. And it's one of the biggest celebrities in entertainment. Of course, it's going to get covered. Yeah. I mean, he's one of the most famous people on earth, you know? And so of course him publicly assaulting someone is going to get global news coverage and it will burn out pretty quickly i'm sure by the end of this week you know it will be something that obviously gets referenced for a while but it's not as if there's going to be ongoing live discussions on major news networks about this 10 days from now but you know see now jim carrey made a great comment about this um he said he would have sued for like 200 million dollars but his comment makes some sense in the fact that this is now something that will permanently be on like Chris Rock's biography. When everyone talks about Chris Rock right now, like for the rest of his life, as good of a comedian as he was, as, as many movies as he's been in, that image of him with his face like pulled back after getting slapped is with him now for the rest of his life. A hundred percent. And that's, that's gotta be tough that this one thing is now, that's what he's defined as. I mean, it's it's a positive and a negative, right? Which I guess when you see with his surging ticket sales, part of it throws him back into the zeitgeist and makes him way more relevant than he was a week ago. So there is that element. I do think in particular what you're saying is true for younger people. I mean, we're right at the back end in, in terms of our age, right, of Chris Rock's relevance as a comedian. It's not as if Chris Rock continues to be, you know, he's not Dave Chappelle where he is this uh, major figure within the stand-up comedy world now. I mean, he is in terms of his legacy, but it's not as if he's constantly getting attention for the jokes and the tours and the movies he's in or whatever. So if you're 25 years old or 20 years old, this might be the first time that you kind of know who Chris Rock is. So of course, then from now on, when someone says Chris Rock, you're going to think of Will Will Smith slapping him. There's no two ways around that. Yeah, for sure. And we can get into the breakdown, the slap a little bit and, and the implications. But I don't know if I mentioned this on the previous podcast. I feel like I may have had some responsibility in this. <laughs> okay. We know about the Duca curse and we know the far reaching implications of the Duca curse. When I di- went on my trip to Canada, I was very excited because I get to go on the plane and watch movies. And it's the only time I really ever watch movies, you know, because I'm usually at home watching TV. I never watch like a full movie. But on the planes, because they have the movies, I just always watch. I can get like two or three, four new movies. The movie I first watched and was most excited to watch was, in fact, King Richard. (laughs) And I don't know if we discussed that. I had watched King Richard on a plane about less than a week before this happened. You and I discussed that. I don't think we mentioned it on the podcast. And we said that we would discuss the movie as a concept on the podcast, which I can guess we can get to after we do this kind of breakdown of the Oscars fiasco. But yeah, I mean, 
for people who are really into the curse theory too, some people are attributing it to the fact that uh, Chris Rock mentioned Macbeth just before because he referenced Denzel Washington and his role in speaking about Macbeth, which obviously there is, you know, uh, superstition within actors that you don't say Macbeth in a theater. And so the fact that he was in a theater presenting awards said Macbeth and then moments later gets slapped could kind of be thought of as being linked to this larger Macbeth curse. What curse do you think has more weight? Um, from what I've witnessed, the Duca curse. I don't know if you, <laughs> I don't know if you watching a movie is a strong enough. If you'd watch the movie for the reason that upon which he was there. Sure. Although Will Smith would probably have been there anyway. I guess would be the argument. I don't know. Jada Pinkett Smith and Will Smith boycotted it. I think what last year, or the year before that was. Yeah. But you know what I mean? I still think fundamentally, he's probably has gone to most Oscar ceremonies since 1995 or whenever. But if you'd watch a Chris Rock movie, then I think I would give more credence to the Duke of Curse. What if I said instance. I followed up by watching Grown Ups? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if that was the back-to-back that you watched, then then sure. But now I'm... But yeah, in terms of the actual incident itself, I mean, first of all, I think the reaction is just so unacceptable. It blows my mind that there is no level of security to kind of stop him from getting on stage, even if it is Will Smith. Not only getting on stage, but then just going back to his seat and nothing happening. I mean, that's the most unacceptable aspect of this to me. I don't know how he didn't get kicked out. I have no idea. I know that he's his award was still to come and that they thought probably he is going to win this. I don't know how he doesn't get removed. And yeah, I actually let's, th- let's 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 put it another way. Let's put it if he was caught in the bathroom ripping a line of cocaine. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know if your your comparisons are great tonight. <laughs> I don't know. They're both illegal activities. Yeah, I, I mean I think they're different. They're definitely different. I, I do get what you're saying. I think they're different. And and in actual fact, I would be I, I think he shouldn't be kicked out for the cocaine, but should be kicked out for going and slapping the guy on stage because the cocaine we don't need to know about, if you see what I mean. If he gets caught by someone doing lines of coke in the bathroom, you can just tell him to stop and send him back to his seat. And then maybe as soon as the, his, he's done accepting his award, you move him on. The fact that he went on stage, slapped someone, goes back to his seat, loudly swears during a live broadcast multiple times even if in the Twice. u.s even if in the u.s broadcast they cut away but from foreign broadcasts it was still live and then in addition to that then not only did they not kick him out he then gets to go on stage and give one of the longer speeches in accepting the award i mean you you definitely i think should have kicked him out you shouldn't have allowed him to accept the award and you definitely shouldn't have allowed him to give a speech and I think they've actually made the situation more complicated because now people are going to want some level of punishment. And it would have been a lot easier to have dealt with it there and then and said, well, the punishment was he got kicked out and didn't get to accept his award. Whereas now it's like, well, what's the retroactive punishment? A long-term ban, some type of fine, stripping him of his Oscar, which is what other people, which is never going to happen. But I don't know. It, it Overall, it's just yeah. unbelievable to me. All right, well, let's let's 
let's break down a few aspects of it. The first aspect that's getting a lot of attention that actually Kareem Abdul-Jabbar brought up is that this is a major disservice to women because he's acting as the, you know, like strong male defending his woman, his damsel in distress instead of the equivalent her what people would call like white stand up for herself. Yeah. Yeah. What do you feel about that? I do get it. I, I understand. I, I mean, it's always one of these ones, right? Where we get into the kind of a controversial topic of people who say, well, feminists want this, but they also want to be, you know, they want to be seen as strong, independent women, but they also want to be protected by men. And I don't want to get into that topic and I don't want to be critical of women for, you know, kind of wanting positive elements of different dynamics. But I do understand him presuming that this is the action that she wanted was a physical assault to defend her honor. I mean, in a sense, she comes off, if she's appalled by the actions, she's almost the biggest victim of what ended up happening because she gets thrown into a mess that she kind of had no involvement in and where she'll get maybe less, more criticism because it looked as if he went up there because she didn't, because obviously he seemed, appeared to initially find the joke funny or at least give it a... I mean, he laughed. Let's, let's, yeah. let's, let's be real. He laughed. But, but that also might just be, he's Will Smith and he's smart enough to know when a joke gets made about you or who you're with on stage and you know a camera's on you that you just begin laughing. You know but what I mean? Wait, like, wait, wait. He's he's that in tuned to know to laugh at the joke, but that unintuned to know that ten seconds later you don't walk on stage and slap someone. I can actually <laughs> as crazy as it is, I can I'm okay with that. I'm okay with his mind because I'm okay with him just being in I'm at a I'm in a public space mode and just when my name gets said, make sure you smile. You know, he'll have been doing this for what, thirty years. Make sure you smile. Someone says something where other people laugh, you laugh because that's the only way you get through it. I'm fine with that. And then maybe it taking five to 10 seconds to kind of register in his mind and then for him to just be seething. I'm actually, that doesn't, for people saying that that doesn't make sense, it actually kind of makes sense to me. But but going back to the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar point, yeah, I get where they're coming from. But I think that's a really complicated, those are complicated waters to wade into. And okay. we don't know their dynamic. And also, I did see some coverage that Will Smith, in his autobiography, and has previously pretty largely spoken about the fact that one of the most shameful moments in his life is that there was domestic violence when he was a child, and that he didn't step up to protect his mother. And ever since then, he's felt as if he's carried this weight of having been a coward when he could have protected her. So to maybe give him some defense in that moment even if he's not trying to be this sort of male figure protecting a woman, he might just be a little bit more sensitive to the fact that he doesn't want women in his life to be the victims of things without him stepping up. Okay. Next comment that you hear very often is the high road of violence is never the answer. Well, you know my opinion on that because I think sometimes violence is the answer. I, I I think it's such a high road, like a high road to take for people where I am sure in instances they have been out to a bar or something like that 
and someone has insulted them and their boyfriend got in the person's face and pushed them and told them to take it outside and they were completely fine with that. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's happened to the majority of people. And at that time, they weren't like, no, no, don't. Let's de-escalate this situation. Violence is never the answer. But see, Frank, I don't think that has happened to most people. I think that's where like in the world, and this isn't to say as if we've come up in some kind of rough and tumble wild west. But I think in the world that we have existed in, in bars or whatever, you are used to the fact that people occasionally, you know, get a little bit too heated and things are said and then maybe occasionally there's a bit of pushing and shoving and even escalates into a larger fight. I actually think for the vast majority of people, that is a world that only exists in movies and TVs and that they've never I'm not so sure about that. I think if we did a a straw poll of everyone we know and, and asked them, have you ever been in a fight or has anyone ever defended you and gone into a physical fight as a result? I think it would be a minority that would say yes. I, I think with university, with the American university college life, I feel that's happened quite regularly in drunk party situations. No, no, no. I'm not saying it's infrequent. My point is, I think it tends to happen within the same kind of groups of people, though. And most people are not within those groups. So if you're... You know, there's a plenty of people who wouldn't have gone to those types of college parties when they were in college, or there's plenty of people who wouldn't go to the types of bars I go to now. You know, so I mean, I think that could sound like you go to these like no, rough but that's... and tumble bars. You got to check check your handgun at the door, sir. No, but that was my point. I'm not, I wasn't. I said at the beginning, I'm not saying that that's the environment in which we exist. However, I I do think I know for a fact that most people, most guys I know, have never been in a fight have never been in one, have never been punched or thrown a punch. Sometimes that blows my mind because I can't imagine, in a sense, my life without ever having been in a fight. Not because I sought them out or that I've taken pride in having been in them, but it's just that- I'll save those stories for another day. <laughs> situations have come to you know, exist where fights have occurred. and But the vast majority of people I know, of guys, if I really ask them, have you been punched or thrown a punch? The answer is no. Have they witnessed a fight, perhaps? But have they been directly involved in it? No. Okay, so let's go to the let's go to the action then. What do you feel about the Hancock backed turned into a slap? I mean, it was it's the more sensible option, right? Because a punch is way more aggressive. I mean, you can hurt someone just as much with a slap, and there can be arguments, right? That actually the the damage in terms of if you catch someone flat on the ear with an open palm slap, you can do them a ton of damage to their eardrum and stuff. So it's not a kinder action necessarily. However, you can walk away from a slap a lot more easily than you can walk away from a punch. I mean, as you know, in one of the bars I worked as at, not to again, make it seem like I worked in some wild west saloon, but the manager of the bar who often worked at the door would regularly open hand slap people when they were either being kicked out or were not being allowed in. I mean, that was his go-to move. And the good thing about the slap is one, which Chris Rock kind of, I think Chris Rock handled his reaction to it really well, but what a slap always does is it stuns people 
and they kind of don't know how to react in a way that they they have a stronger reaction to a punch a lot more times you know like the the temptation to a punch is to punch back or to do something whereas a slap you're more trying to process exactly what just happened to you and it's kind of embarrassing i was gonna say unless the punch is successful enough to render to knock you you out (laughs) sure but still and it's way easier to de-escalate from a slap than it is from a punch because a punch again even though they can do equal damage and they can be just as forceful a punch just seems more aggressive. So coming from someone who portrayed Muhammad Ali, are you slightly disappointed? That he couldn't deck Chris Rock? I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a little better. (laughs) I mean, I guess I'm happy that it wasn't because again, the, the repercussions, if he knocked Chris Rock out are a lot more severe, but so it's good for everyone involved that it wasn't better. I mean, it's not only that he, I mean, yes, he, obviously he played Muhammad Ali. And as part of that, he went through a couple of years of boxing training. So he legitimately, you know, I'm sure he can fight pretty well. So in that, and he also is significantly taller and bigger than Chris Rock. So everything points towards the fact that you would expect him to be able to knock when he's sucker punching Chris Rock, you'd expect Chris Rock to end up on the ground. I'm not disappointed that he didn't do that. I guess maybe I, I think I'd give more credit to Chris Rock that he was not to make it into it, but he was fundamentally unrocked by the slap itself and just kind of held his ground and then was able to pretty instantly react to it just through words and was coherent in those reactions. I think I give him more credit than I would say being critical of. Yeah, I, I think Chris Rock handled it really well. That was actually the follow-up question here would be, do you think he took too much of the high road? Do you think when Will Smith sat back down, he should have went into full asshole stand-up comedy mode and just roasted both of them? Because at that point, he has to know that if Will Smith tries to get up again, there's no way he's getting to Chris Rock the second time. <laughs> so, do you, so, so do you play the card of, oh, you came up here and slapped me, you think you're tough? Now I'm going to roast you in front of millions and millions of people. And now you're going to heat. Now you're going to feel it. <laughs> no, no. I think, I think he took the correct decision. And, and again, because it's not a Chris Rock standup show, right? So there's, a, there has to be a self, there are a sense of awareness of the, where you are and what you're there for. And again, I mean, it's the thing that a lot of people have mentioned, right? The, the thing that's so selfish about what Will Smith did is how it took spotlight away from other people who are having some of the biggest moments of their lives to the fact that the rest of the ceremony kind of gets derailed by the fact that it's you know just murmurs about what happened between will smith and chris rock instead of appreciating you know immediately after it's Questlove receiving his oscar and that gets kind of overlooked and then i think the in memoriam was immediately after so the, all the people who you're supposed to be kind of paying tribute to these people who have, you know, contributed to the arts and have passed away in the last year are now being completely ignored because they're talking about a slap that took place on stage. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I'm, and I'm joking in the sense that Chris Rock would have done. It. I think he, he handled that as well as any person who got slapped in the face on national TV could have handled it. How do you feel the crowd handled it, which cheered 
after he did it and said what he said to Chris Rock. I have a big issue with the overall audience, not only in their initial reaction to the incident, but the fact that they then also gave him a good reaction when he won his Oscar and when he gave his speech and when he touched on needing to being this river to do whatever these well well we'll get we'll get we'll get to the speech Eddie. we're going we're going step by step here let's okay. not jump let's not jump things here <laughs> but yeah i i think overall i'd give the audience a lot of criticism i think and how about the fact that no one did anything either i mean again doing i don't know what you do admittedly because you don't want to just continue to escalate the situation. So what do you do? If you're a f- another famous actor sitting there nearby, what do you do? Go smack Will Smith in defense of Chris yes. Rock? And just a, just a brawl if breaks Adam out. Sandler were there, Will Smith's on the ground. <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, that that I don't know. I mean, if I'm, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to pretend that if I'd been, you know, I'm, I'm an actor and I'm sitting there, I'm I'm also just staying in my seat and whispering to the people around me isn't that insane but i'm definitely not applauding or cheering or trying to give any indication that i think what will smith had done was good yeah and then so the other part of this too is then there obviously was you know like commercial breaks and things like that and other actors had come over to him to kind of i guess de-escalate the situation and i i that's a part i also don't know how I feel about it because they're almost kind of telling him that it was somewhat all right. Yeah. You know, no one like Denzel Washington told him, I I forget the exact quote, but something of, you know, when the, when the, the devil comes for you when you're in your biggest moment or something along those lines. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. When when the lights are shining the bright or something like that. But at the same time, if Denzel Washington's a true friend, maybe should have been like, Hey, that was a really dickhead move you just yeah. did. Maybe you should instantly apologize to everyone and actually maybe just leave. You know, yeah. maybe it's best if you're not even here for the rest of it. And certainly <laughs> you know, like, apologize instead to of Chris kind of Rock. Being, yes. Yeah. Which he didn't until yeah. the next day. Yeah. No, I do agree with you. It did seem as if there was a lot of people in there trying to console Will Smith and calm him down were kind of condoning what he had done. I do think that yeah. is definitely what how it came across. Okay. Do you give him the award? As in, do I think he should have been stripped of it completely, or do you not present it to him? Either or. So I don't think he should have... I mean, I think he should have been kicked out. I don't think he should have been presented with the Oscar. I think even if you don't kick him out, I think you then say, hey, Will Smith is not allowed on the stage. His his moment on the stage has already occurred this evening. And I actually think just overall, the Oscars never really addressed. I think that's the weird thing when you kind of look back through the footage. If you happen to have not watched the two minutes in which this occurred, they never really addressed the fact again. So you would have been completely, you know, if you'd gone, if you were watching the entire Oscar ceremony, you go to the bathroom or go to get a drink during this moment because you go, I don't really care about this documentary, you know, director oscar that's about to come up you come back and you there's just no acknowledgement of the fact that this weird thing had happened i don't think you definitely don't present him with i would have kicked him out so that would have solved that problem i don't think you present him with the award to be perfectly honest with you i kind of think he should have been stripped of the oscar 
but I know that that's a lot more complicated to do. And I don't know how you handle that in the moment during a live ceremony and the implications that it has. I don't know how you deal with all of that, but I think fundamentally he should have been sort of disqualified from being a, you know, up for the best actor award. Yeah. It's, it's a tough one. I I, I agree. I think he should have just been thrown out. And then if you want to give it to him, you can give it to him, but he doesn't have the opportunity to make a speech because he doesn't deserve it because he was on stage and was very poor in his first on stage performance. So he shouldn't get another chance, but the Oscars did let him get on stage and did let him give a speech. (laughs) One, I think the speech was very disrespectful to Richard Williams, who we can get to the movie and that person who after watching that movie, I don't feel is a very good person, but regardless of whether he was or wasn't a good person, I would feel pretty pissed off if someone did something like that and then was like, Hey, I just portrayed this character. Who's a, uh, a fierce protector of family. Like, no, Like, don't put me in that category of walking onto the Oscars and slapping someone. Especially because most people won't be that knowledgeable about Richard Williams. Because even, okay, so maybe the movie will give him a little bit more of a, sort of people a little bit better of an understanding, even if you want to say maybe it's a, how true of a portrayal of him it is, who knows. But, you know, for the most people, even if they're aware of who Serena and Venus Williams are and they know that their father played a key role in their development, they don't have sort of strong opinions of who he is as a person. So once you then say, hey, as implying as if you're a method actor and you're kind of still in character, and this is what Richard Williams would have done, is gone on stage and slapped that guy. I do agree with you. I would be upset if I were sitting, if I were there and being like, I mean, I don't think Richard Williams was there which is kind of an indicator of maybe who he is as a person. But I still think you'd be upset about that. Yeah. And then his other quote that kind of really ticked me off was, I believe it was some love makes you do crazy things. And I do not at all agree with you can just throw it up to love makes you assault someone on stage. And, well, you know, it's love, man. Love yeah. makes you do fucked up things. Sorry. Yeah, no, it's a it's a bad excuse. No, I will not say an excuse. Richard Williams has come out and made a comment about this. I don't know if you saw, but he said, uh, "We don't know all the details of what happened, but we don't condone anyone hitting anyone else unless it's in self defense." I do like throwing in that qualifier. That is, which it's not a bad qualifier, but the fact that you're yeah. you're kind of adding that in, it's kind of an indication of a little bit of your mindset. And, and look, part of me feels sorry. I think it was a really bad speech. Part of me, not that I'm very sympathetic towards Will Smith. He's in a horrible, another reason why they just shouldn't have allowed him to get up there. He's in a horrible spot because obviously he's ruined his own big moment. And on top of it, you know, he's probably running through the thoughts in his mind of, do I address this issue? Do I just speak about how proud of a moment of the, this is and all the people who've helped me get to this spot? You kind of caught, you know, he's between a rock and a hard place, not to have it be a pun. Man, how many times are you going to do that? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But he, you know, he's, it's kind of an impossible task. 
and and he just kind of rambles, doesn't make a lot of sense, doesn't come up with any really meaningful statements either in thanking people who've helped him or in addressing the issue. And that's just another reason why they shouldn't have let him get up there in the first place. And the fact that they let him speak for four or five minutes is also insane. So after, so he doesn't, he doesn't apologize to Chris Rock during that speech either. He apologizes to the Academy and the audience, but not to the person who he assaulted. Yeah. Yeah. Which again, just if he'd had any common sense is what he should have probably led with, but it shows that, I mean, it shows that he's still worked up about it and he doesn't think that he didn't, he, he did anything wrong, but you know, you would have hoped Again, if someone had taken him aside, all these people giving him advice and helping him calm down would have said, hey, you're probably going to win the Oscar, though. Just make sure you start your speech off by apologizing for what you've done and in particular apologizing to Chris Rock. And then maybe that helps us move on. I mean, I have a few other Oh, thoughts. what else do you have? Oh, I, I have one other one okay, that go keeps for it. popping up a lot. This is the last one I always see on Facebook is a lot of kind of jokes and mocking towards Will Smith because him and Jada are in an open relationship mm-hmm. and things of that. And that's the one area where I kind of disagree with people because one, it has nothing to do with it. And hey, maybe they're super progressive and 200 years down the line, everyone's going to have an open marriage, you know, yeah. like... But it's what that's just their lifestyle, and that's how they chose to live it. And so, it's it's an unfair mocking just because that's how they're living their lives. You yeah. know, that was the only one I was like, well, whatever. Like, probably I guess half the people here are just jealous because <laughs> they're just hooking up with whoever they want, and you can't. <laughs> I guess the only argument I do a hundred percent agree with you. I guess the only argument is they don't appear to have been particularly sensitive to about to all the jokes that have been made about that situation over the past two years or however long it's been. So they do seem to have treated elements of their life as sort of being fair play. And then you get to this moment where you should know better. And then suddenly you're not, you have no sense of humor. And, and look, it wasn't a funny joke. It, It wasn't even much of a joke in fairness. It was kind of more of a little point. I don't know, but you know, for everyone saying what would have happened if Ricky Gervais had been presenting, I think the difference is that for the most part, Ricky Gervais was always making kind of genuine jokes and they tended to be actually funny. And I think whenever you are going to make a controversial comment or something that's a little bit rude or mean spirited, it at least has to be funny because then you can get away with the, it was just a joke argument. The only thing that doesn't help Chris Rock is it just kind of wasn't funny and it just didn't seem necessary. But again, that's not justifying the reaction. Yeah. All right. So what what do you got now? I'm going to throw us in right in the deep end here on the more controversial thoughts I've had. And I do not want to come across as kind of being some conservative media being, Oh, but, (laughs) but, they are so lucky that this is two. My thoughts are that these were two black men because the dynamic would have been so different had either one of them been white 
in terms of how that would have just changed the discourse post-incident. If you see what I mean, like if Chris, if instead of Chris Rock, it had been Ricky Gervais, and then no, Eddie, I don't see what you mean. <laughs> and then it's Will Smith going up. Then there's this whole other element of people coming on one side or the other of the argument of, well, this is just a typical white man making a comment, or people saying, oh, we're making this a racial incident that didn't need to be one. So I think. See, so now, now getting back to Kareem, to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, though. He also said that this is a bad stain on the black community, even though it is what you're saying. But because just that Will Smith is black, no matter who he was that he was attacking, that it is a a, a bad, I, I forget the exact quote. It was something like, it's a really bad look for the black community and it sets the black community back is what I think he said. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it sets the black community back. That seems to add too much weight to this incident. But I do understand what he's saying in that, it continues to it perpetuates certain images of black men that certain people have that obviously as a society we are trying to move past but when you do have one of the most famous wealthiest black actors on earth reverting to a type of behavior that those people would associate with black culture I guess would be the argument, then it is a shame because there will be people out there who will be pointing to this and saying, you see, like, this is what we're talking about. It's part of, you know, it's kind of what black American culture well, Those people are is. idiots, but. <laughs> no, 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 I'm not just, I'm not, but I do understand where Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is coming from in that, from that perspective yeah. is you can understand why you'd think this is a shame. Like we're trying to have role models who show a different side of us or the correct side. And now you're, you're kind of giving ammunition to people who, who a don't really need it because they'll find it anyway, but it's, and who are wrong, but it's a bit of a shame. Did you have any others? Well, I guess my other argument would be how, if it had been a female comic making the joke, if he goes up and slaps Amy Schumer, making exactly the same joke, how different is the fallout? Does he get kicked out? I know that, again, it's an impossible- I know you're trying to bait me here, Eddie. I really <laughs> know you're trying to bait me. No, I'm not, asking, not, for your, I'm not asking for your opinions of Amy Schumer, and I don't want you to tell me that she doesn't qualify as a comic. I'm fine with all of that. But, and again, it's not trying to, these are always difficult, topics to bring up in a sense because I don't want someone listening to be like, ah, you see these guys are making the point that I want in that these they're asking for equality, but they don't really want it. Or, you know, those kind of arguments, because that's not my point. It's just imagining the scenario where he does that. He slaps a woman. How different would, I mean, I cannot imagine if he slaps a woman that they allow him to stay. And I think if he slapped a woman, I think, there would have been an immediate call for him to have been stripped of his Oscar, which is just interesting because the assault is still fundamentally just an assault. Yes. But I think the other considerate, see, there's a lot at play there because the real question I think is, would, would a female comedian have made that joke about a female's appearance 
I mean, if she didn't know that it was that Jada Pinkett Smith had alopecia, I think it's possible. Because again, I think they would have maybe even come up with the arguments that we already touched on, which is, yes, it's a joke about your appearance. I think that's my statement, Eddie, is a woman wouldn't have made such a shitty joke about someone's appearance. They would have had a better, more sophisticated joke. <laughs> I, I disagree with you there. But that's your way of, of removing yourself but I, from the. I also, I honestly also don't know if Will Smith would have. I'm not saying he slapped it if it were when I, I. But I think he would have yelled what he yelled at Chris Rock. I'm not saying that he would have, and I and you know as and as much as I'm saying assault is assault, there is a difference between slapping a man and slapping a woman, and we all know that. And I'm not. I do not think Will Smith would have reacted in the same way had it been a a female comic. But I'm just saying, kind of playing that scenario out in my mind. How different is the reaction in the theater, and how different is? I think he gets stripped of his Oscar if he slaps a woman. I don't think he gets the Oscar. He either doesn't get the Oscar that night. I think he probably doesn't even get the Oscar that night. I think they probably open that envelope and decide, uh, let's give this to Andrew Garfield or whoever, you know, like let's just stick another name in there and avoid this controversy altogether. Or which in some respects, it kind of surprises me. They didn't even do it because supposedly, right. There's only like two people who know the result before they open the envelope. Like it's the auditors from KPMG or, you know, whichever, because all of this got discussed when the, yeah. The moonlight, yeah, fiasco Incident. happened. But I think they either open that envelope and just stick a different name in, or I think afterwards we're now in a very heated discussion where it's Will Smith should be stripped of his Oscar. See, I thought you were going to go with the was it staged? I mean, no part of me thinks it's staged. I know that there's people. I don't think so either. There's people online who continue to say it's staged, and they're coming up with evidence. I don't, why would they stage it? I get that the only argument for staging it is for the Oscars, it's great coverage. But why would Will Smith or Chris Rock agree Agree to that? (laughs) Particularly (laughs) Will Smith. He has completely (laughs) changed his image in a way that Chris Rock, again, maybe you spin it as, yes, this is, this will be the first thing people refer to him as. Like, I mean, the argument always gets made. This is like the leading line in his obituary now. Almost, you know, when he dies, Chris Rock, who famously got slapped by Will Smith at the Oscars, you know, like that's almost how we go. And then it's like a Vander Holyfield. Exactly. If I say Vander Holyfield, what do you think? Bit Mike, Mike Tyson, Tyson's ear off. Ear. Not wor- world not, champion boxer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and and uh, but I, so I I do think. I guess the argument with Chris Rock is, yes, it's increased his sales, although that's a little bit of a gamble on his side that it is going to increase sales. Like there was no guarantee this was going to drive sales and it's not going to be a long-term thing, right? People are talking about it like, oh, wow, this tour. It's not as if for the next 10 years, Chris Rock is going to be on sold out tours nonstop around the world because of this incident. But I mean, for Will Smith, why on earth would he do this? Like you could make a legitimate argument. I don't know if Will Smith will ever be the leading man now in a major film. Like this might have tarnished tarnished his image enough where people decide they do not want to 
bring him in. Certainly not to the type of films, maybe something like King Richard, which I guess is how he can transition because that's a little bit of a, you know, like a more controversial topic and, and sort of dark, a little bit darker in some respects. But in terms of playing like big blockbuster movies that he has been associated with and where he is this globally recognized kind of guaranteed box office hit, that might be gone for him now. So why on earth would he do this? The amount of money you would have to give him and money probably wouldn't even do it because it's just reputation and legacy. I, anyone thinking it's staged, I just don't understand it. Yeah, I in no way do I think that was at all staged. But, Unless that was a, I, I, you can't even say it was a large sum of money because it. What amount of money would Will Smith? A billion, need? a billion I mean, dollars. Right? Yeah. You know, it's always like those things. It's when people talk about sports being fixed. And there are opportunities to fix sports, but sometimes they talk about the idea of like Cristiano Ronaldo intentionally missing a penalty. And then the argument is, how much money would you have to give Cristiano Ronaldo for him to consider doing this? I mean, it just ungodly sums of money, at which point, how do you also make enough money off of doing this to justify paying him to do it, which again would be the reverse. Great, this is good Oscar buzz. But if how much if the Oscars are paying Will Smith five hundred million dollars to slap Chris Rock, they could have just kept the five hundred million dollars. Like there's no, they've not made. You know, this is it's not even like next year's Oscars are suddenly going to be a must watch event because who knows who's going to slap who this year. You know, like this is good coverage for a week. The Oscars got talked about a little bit more than they would have done but it's not changed the way we see the Oscars and it hasn't suddenly made the Oscars a ton of money that they otherwise would not have made. But on to the movie itself, I guess, which I will say you have seen. I have not seen. I think I will refuse to see it and that is not because of this incident. <laughs> it is because... You're, you're, you're pro Chris Rock. You refuse to see yeah, it. Exactly. I stand with Chris. You're team, you're team Rock. Yeah. I... I find it difficult and i know i think from my understanding of how this got made that it was originally being made independently and that then during the production process they sort of told serena and venus williams look if you like the end product you can be producers you can kind of take producers credits and they showed them the end product and they liked it and that's why they are sort of heavily involved in the promotion of the movie, but that fundamentally, originally it was being done without their involvement. So I don't want to, what I'm about to say, is not a reflection. It does not change necessarily my image of them. I don't like the but, fact, I don't like the fact that this was made while they're still active tennis players. Like, I don't like this kind of legacy film being made in the same way that I don't like that Andy Murray was knighted while he's still a tennis player and that technically it needs to say Sir Andy Murray on a scoreboard. Don't like that. Wait till he retires. Don't make a movie about your childhood or your career until you've retired. It's the same as like people writing like autobiographies when they're 22, you know, and then having to write seven autobiographies over the course of their lives because they're releasing them every few years. That's my real issue with it. I get why it's a compelling story and it's a good story to being told in terms of the example it sets, you know, and for women and for minorities, 
and you know the, the Williams sisters have done a great deal in terms of inspiring other people to do you know to in particular play tennis but also maybe to go into sports or fields that they otherwise would not have thought to be possible so I understand what they represent I just wish you make these kind of things a few years after their careers are done yeah that part did seem a little strange you know that they're well I mean they're towards the back end of the career I guess you could say so you're getting there whether it was made now or five years from now I don't know how much of a difference that makes but overall it's it's a really good movie the female leads who play Serena and and Venus did a tremendous job I mean they I think they were actually the best actors in in the movie they were really good you know like it can be really difficult sometimes like when you're portraying children to kind of evoke an emotional response from the audience you know they're like oh they're just children you know like oh look they're children being children but you like you really do get a good feel for like the struggles they went through and then like that not only the struggles of of you know being from Compton trying to make it in tennis but also just the struggle of wanting to be a kid and be competitive and compete and having a father who was almost prohibiting that, you know, he didn't let them play in competition for, I think it was what, like two or three years. He didn't let Venus play in any competitions. So so like you could really see that and you could feel it because like it almost made me think about if I were a kid and I were much better at the sports that I was playing and was told like, no, actually you can't compete. You can only practice for them. Like that must be so frustrating as, as a teenager to be told that. So they did a great job. He was really good in the sense that he's not the most lovable character, but you kind of respect him, I think, as who he was, like as being their father and what he did to set them on that path. But at the same time, it wasn't like the greatest way that he did it, you know? So like you don't hate the character, but you don't love the character. And I think that's kind of hard to do as an actor to kind of make this character where you don't flat out hate them. But at the end of the day, you you kind of can get back and sit back and say like, well, I really don't agree with everything he did, but I guess it worked. And, you know, it was good. I, it, that's he, all, he did a good job. That's always the issue with this, right? Is your perception of him as a figure changes because it worked. If Serena and Venus Williams had never become professional tennis players, then it is just a story of abuse, fundamentally. Like, this is always, it's like the Andre Agassi, you know, who never, who always resented his father. And it's one of those interesting ones because you kind of look at it as as an outsider and think to yourself, yeah, I'm sure that Andre Agassi, you know, if you kind of spoke to him, you'd sit down and say, right, your dad was a dick and kind of ruined your childhood in making you hit a thousand forehands and a thousand backhands before you could go to school. But, you know, by in doing so, he provided you with a future and a life that you otherwise probably would not have had. So do you get to 30 years old and think, Hey, you really ruined, you know, seven or eight years of my life. But as a result of that, I'm going to have an amazing life in the long term. And how do I balance that out? In Andre Agassi's instance, he's never forgiven his father and just thinks that he was kind of abusive. But fundamentally, the only thing that, you know, either with the Serena Williams and Venus Williams story or the Andre Agassi story, it's very different if 
they never become professionals. And then it's just a, a overbearing parent forcing their which, child to train and maybe which there probably are so many of those true stories out there which is also this the dangerous element of kind of you know promoting it and and celebrating it because you run the risk of there being other parents out there saying like well, how amazing you know you even had it a little see, little bit with like tiger woods see, now that's a, th- yeah but but that's what i think that they actually did a good job in is that you don't walk away from that movie. At least I didn't saying, Oh, he did a great job. You walk away from that movie almost saying like, was it worth it? You know, like some of the things he did, yes, they became successful. But like you're saying, I mean, with Andre Agassi, like you look back on it and it, it pretty much ruined his relationship with his wife. It, you know, there was a lot of aspects of it where, you kind of are on the fence about whether what he did was actually the right thing, even though with the end result. And I think that's difficult to do when the end result is they're two of the most successful women's tennis players of all time. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it ruined a lot of, and, and it would be interesting. I mean, he never, he never, the, the Williams sisters have done a very good job for the most part. I mean, I guess up until this movie of putting their father very much in the background apart from initially in their careers where he was an ever present figure. And then there was a story when his mother and his father couldn't sit together anymore. So then there was them sitting in different sections and that was a story for a while. And then the father just stopped being there and, you know, they've done this good job of kind of phasing him out of their image and their story. This reintroduces him. I think it's been pretty telling that he's not really been involved in any of the promotion for the movie. You know, so there haven't been a lot of interviews with Richard Williams to talk about, you know, even if it's a, even if it's a hard hitting interview of, do you regret doing this? Do you think you were too hard in this? Do you think you maybe did long-term damage to them by doing this? And, and, and again, that's kind of the weird part to me in some respects of them attaching themselves to it because they do appear to have distanced themselves and it doesn't seem as if their relationship with him is great. So then it is strange, even though it is their, their story, it is also his story. And it's kind of odd to, I don't know, again, it's without being in the position, it's so hard to know how you would view it or how you would deal with it. But it just, I don't know. I do think there's a danger still, even if he doesn't come out of it, not seeing the movie, even if he doesn't come out of it looking great, there still is that danger of a lot of other parents thinking it's kind of almost a playbook of, but yeah, but if I want my kids to be professional athletes, I just, I'm going to be the dick, but it's, it's all worthwhile in the end, right? Because they're now all multimillionaires and, you know, maybe he didn't go by Dick. He went by Richard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I think that's the, that's the concern. I will say it was much better than the new Ghostbusters. I don't think that was the other movie I watched. I don't think that's saying much. <laughs> that Paul Rudd, though, man, is he is he so lovable? <laughs> yeah. Now Paul Rudd would have never slapped Chris Rock. He would have handled that very differently. <laughs> Good old Paul Rudd. <laughs> well, now that we've spent. <laughs> Nearly. 15 minutes talking about roller hockey, 45 minutes talking about Will Smith and the Oscars. Yeah. 
What do we want to talk the next three hours about? I mean, there's not been a lot of uh, sports really to discuss from this week, right? So I guess we can we can wrap up. We can do like a quick fire. I'll throw. I'll do the reverse. I'll do the quick fire sports topics, throwing them your way. I'll start with one that we'll keep in the tennis theme. One that uh, probably gets no real reaction, but it looks as if uh, Medvedev will become world number one. He's now one win away. He will he wins in the next round of the ATP in Miami, he becomes world number one. So I guess that's kind of notable news. And um, Britain, this is even less notable in some respects, but Britain is on course to have only its third ever male world number one in tennis, although this is obviously in, in doubles. And it will be the first time that it is a man not named, not from the Murray family, because both of the Murray brothers have been world number one, respectively, in singles and doubles. And uh, so this will be uh, Joe Salisbury will become the first non-Murray British men's number one. Joe Salisbury. What a what a British name that is. Joseph Salisbury. I bet you he's got a great middle name. (laughs) Frederick. (laughs) So there's our tennis quickfire round. I guess we can do a, a Formula One quickfire round. A not a dramatic weekend in Formula One in terms of the actual racing, although uh, Max Verstappen managed to get his first points of the Formula One calendar by uh, overtaking Charles Leclerc in the final couple of laps of the race, an exciting finish to the race itself. But the big talking point is that there was a missile strike not too far from the, the racetrack itself, you know, in the build up to the race. And despite concerns from the drivers about security, the race went ahead. Kind of mind blowing. Yeah, it's mind blowing that they even ran that race. And why couldn't they have just realized where the location was and postponed it, you know, or canceled it or moved it or something? I mean, this is the issue, right? This is. It touches on larger topics that we've addressed in the past where when you've got money flowing into a sport from certain countries or regimes or groups, then you'll become a little bit beholden to them. So it becomes difficult to move, you know, races away from venues that are close to conflict zones in this instance. And because there's too much money associated with the event taking place. All right, on to the next quick fire. We've, we've spoken a little bit about the uh, NCAA men's basketball tournament, and we are now on course for, I guess, the kind of dream matchup from the NCAA's perspective in the final four, the semifinals of the tournament. I think no one cares really about the other side of the bracket, but the big focus is on the first. I mean, it. it I know everyone said it. It blows my mind that this is the first time that I feel like I've said multiple things have blown my mind over the course of this episode, but that this is the first time that Duke and North Carolina have played each other in the tournament just stuns me. I get, yeah, it's crazy. If you had asked me a week ago, how many times have they played? I probably would have guessed, I don't know, four or five, maybe even higher. But obviously, yeah, I, I had known that because I'm a pretty big Duke fan, but it, it, even knowing it, it's still crazy to think of it with 
how many years both those teams have been so successful that they haven't met somewhere down the bracket. Yeah. And obviously, the, so for those unaware, one of the biggest rivalries in college basketball and I guess in college sports as a whole. So you have that element tied in. But also Coach K's, you know, this is his last dance. This is his final run. And obviously closing in on a dream ending if he's able to sign off with a with a tournament victory. But I guess also maybe a nightmare ending if it if the you know the final game is him a losing. poetic ending. Well, if <laughs> if it's him losing to UNC in the final game, I mean that is UNC fans wouldn't. I mean that that for them is their dream just as a way to, to put the final nail in the Coach K coffin. Yeah, and it's, you know, the last time they met was at the end of the regular season when UNC beat Duke. So, you know, UNC is going to be going in there confident. And it's it's interesting because I think both teams can easily get motivated by the fact it's Coach K's last season. You know, you have Duke who obviously is going to, you know, we really need to win this for him. It's his last Final Four ever, and then UNC being like, we have to make sure he doesn't win. This is his last Final Four ever. So it's one of these rare occurrences where where one team's scenario can equally impact and motivate both teams. Although I do find it funny, over the course of, you know, I've watched every Duke game so far, and, you know, it was kind of close for a moment, not, you know, in, in, their, in the last round. And the commentators regularly referring to the fact that these players seem they know what's at stake for coach K and they seem extra motivated to make sure that they do as much as they can to keep his run going. And whilst I'm sure that they want to win for him, I mean, this is also their biggest moment as individuals. It's not as if players otherwise go into the, into like March madness and think to themselves, ah, Something bigger is coming. I mean, there obviously are players who know they're NBA bound who might think that there are some bigger moments coming. But for the vast majority of the players, this is absolutely the biggest moment of their sporting lives. So I don't know if you need any additional motivation. It's not like with two minutes to go, we're down three. Ah, I'll give it a miss. Like, who cares? Yeah, I I did like that. Did you see uh, when they were interviewing one of the Duke players? Uh, he came up to like Coach K. He's like, this guy's the GOAT. He's the GOAT. And Coach K was like, ah, shut up. Yeah. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> yeah. And I and and on a similar note, I did speak to you off podcast about my frustration with the St. Peter's coach, who I, I'm always, I always enjoy, you know, these so-called Cinderella runs. I think it's really nice to see these players who, this is absolutely the biggest moment of their sporting lives and who have no future beyond this tournament. And this is their moment in the spotlight and to watch people. Maybe they have no future in professional basketball. Eddie, let's not write them off as human beings. I said in their sporting (laughs) lives. Yeah, they could become coaches. Sure. But the vast majority of them are, I mean, what, at best a high school coach. You know what I mean? We're not talking in all likelihood – 10 years from now, most of them are like cars, car salesmen or something. And people are being like, Hey, do you remember Frank? Do you remember Frankie? I, he played for St. Pete. Remember that team that went on a deep run in 2022? He was on that team. He was the backup point guard. 
Tell me how you really feel about college athletes, Eddie. They're all just going to be car salesmen. Whatever. Or have great careers. But you know what I mean? That's going to be... And that would be cool. I would love that. Look, that's way more than I achieved. So I'm not knocking it. I would be... I would love to be a, if someone was meeting me, if I'm just sitting in a bar and, and there's college basketball on and we're talking about it and maybe able to casually throw in, hey, there was one year where my team made a deep run and you could kind of allude to it and then have people ask you questions and then gradually realize which team you were on and how far you went. Amazing. Great yeah. for them. Like the, the, what's his face? Doug Eddard is set for life. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, 100%. That guy. Whatever, whatever occupation he chooses, he will get so much like more publicity for that because he's Doug Eddard. He's that guy from St. Peter's. Yeah. I mean, put it this way. We, for, definitely in terms of the initial part of his career, whatever job he wants out of college now, he will get. I mean, not any job, but the field he wants to go into, someone will hire him because they want him working for them. They want the story. They want to talk to him about it. They want him hanging around the office. They want the water cooler conversation to be about, tell me about what it was like and this, that, and the other. They want to get to the office March Madness bracket and have him picking. They want to touch the mustache. Yeah. You know what I mean? Whatever it is. So it's not a knock on them for saying it, but, you know, I, so I do love the idea. Like, I think that's what's magical about March Madness is the fact that these people, it's like the FA Cup. It's like when you see, you know, a real minnow suddenly and it's, they're semi-professionals and they're going to play at Anfield and you know, absolutely, this is it. This is what their whole life has kind of been for and it's not going to get better. And I think that's a crazy thing in sport that for the most part in the professional sense, we don't get to see. Because even if like the Super Bowl is your biggest moment, you, you think to yourself, I'll get to another one, right? You know what I mean? Like Joe Burrow will be telling himself, I'll play another Super Bowl. So you don't get that same sort of experience. But I hated the fact that as part of it, they kept after every game trying to play the nobody believes in us. We're not really an underdog. Like, oh, we're, we're proving the whole world wrong. That I hate. Just Wait, wait, I'm, I'm confused. The St. Peter's. Do you hate the part that they're – they're saying no one respects them or that they're not an underdog? Well, I'm not saying that they're saying no one respects them, but that nobody believes in us, which isn't the same as respect, right? But the nobody thinks we can beat, you know, whoever. Nobody thinks we can beat UNC, which ultimately they couldn't. But going into that game, like, okay, no one thinks we can win this, but we, be, you know, they are. And there the implication was to a certain extent that people were disrespecting their achievements so far in the tournament. But also just... The fact that they were saying they were even going as far to say as people are calling us underdogs. We're not underdogs. You are underdogs. That's the part you don't like. Yeah, I, I hate this idea. Okay, embrace okay. the story. Like actually, yeah. Okay, I, th I, I thought you, I thought you were having a problem with the fact that they were saying no one believes in us or no one thinks we can do it because I think that part's true. I think if you pulled the vast majority of people, ninety-five percent would have bet against them every time. No. Uh, I no, a hundred percent. I agree with you. I mean, I did the yeah, whole yeah. way, but, 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 yes. <laughs> but that second part, I agree with you. But, but what I don't like is in them, in them using the nobody believes in us as fuel. Like, I think it's, I think it's good to acknowledge like, Hey, look, nobody really believes in us, but you know, we obviously believe in ourselves, but to use it as nobody believes us and we're going to prove them wrong. 
it's like, guys, we hadn't heard of you until a week ago. Why do you expect us to believe in you? You know what I mean? This is insane. If, if, you know, Burkina Faso were suddenly in the quarterfinals of the men's football world cup, I'm not going to suddenly be like, well, I level playing field against Brazil, I guess, you know, there's, there's, I'm fine with it. Acknowledge it, but I'd prefer you embrace the, the Cinderella story, the underdog story versus trying to be like, we're not underdogs. We're not all these people doubting us. They're idiots they should be thinking of as a number one seed, even though we were a 15 seed and had a pretty mediocre regular season. That bit annoyed me. Yeah. It, you know, the disappointing part is all good runs have to come to an end, but it was one too short. You know, it would have been really neat to see them in a final four. I, that w- they were so close but yet they just couldn't get that. If they had lost in the final four, then forever they can say we're a final four team. We made it to the final four. But what they can say was we were a Cinderella team, but yet we couldn't quite make it to the final four. Which, right, they were the first 15 seed to make it to the Elite Eight. So they you know, made some history there. I do agree with you that the Elite Eight seems a little bit... It's such or, less significant. Or, or quarterfinals for non-American yeah. listeners. It seems a little bit more flimsy in like... You kind of in your mind be like, well, yeah, but a lot of weird teams make it to the quarterfinals of things. Like, it's not that strange. Like the semifinals. You is, won three games. Yeah. The right? semifinals is where it starts to feel really meaningful. So I do yeah. agree with you in that respect. Ultimately, I think it's good they got knocked out when they did because the, the manner in which they were, they were knocked out is how they were going to get knocked out at some point. And if that had been a final four game where it's just them getting pretty much blown out from the first minute, it's kind of ruined that final four weekend. Whereas we got to enjoy the run and they lost in the manner in which people expected them to lose in round one, but they did it in the elite eight. And that's the other element of the, them trying to spin that like, nobody believes in us. You're all fools kind of thing. In the end, what happened to you is what everyone thought would happen to you. It just happened a couple rounds later than most people expected. <laughs> it's not as if you kept shooting the lights out and, played lockdown defense, you looked outmatched and UNC clearly were the better team. And I guess, you know, at the end of the day, as awesome as it would have been to see a 15 seed in the final four, not being impartial because I'm a Duke fan, I think Duke UNC as a final four matchup for the first time meeting ever in a tournament in Coach K's last season ever as Duke coach is a much better storyline than a 15 seed making the final four and then losing. If the 15 seed made the final four and won at all, then maybe yes. you argue that's the better story, but I don't, that's different. Odds yeah. are highly it, it, against them. <laughs> yes. And, and look, you know, Duke, obviously nationwide, a kind of unpopular team and all of the Duke coach K haters out there, would have latched onto like, oh, how typical is this? Coach K makes the final four in his final season and he gets to play against this garbage 15 seed. You know, that would have been the other thing of like, this does this even count as him really making the championship game? Like, is there an asterisk that needs to be applied because he's basically played a round one game in the final four? So I think it's also saved us from all of that going on, which the kind of talking heads 
in sport even you know he would have had first take and all of those shows debating that endlessly as well so i think we've avoided that and we kind of get the dream matchup so i agree with you and for me you know i'm not a huge college basketball i mean i watch march madness for the most part but now unc duke becomes must watch viewing in a way that it otherwise would not have been so I'll rapid fire one to you, even though that wasn't much of a rapid fire. <laughs> we probably should have maybe even led with that uh, getting into the final four. But did you see that the NFL has uh, approved a change in the rules for overtime? So I didn't see that they've approved it. I saw that the, I saw the two proposals that were being put forward. So go ahead. I'm going to guess which I'm going to guess which one I think. So this is not. This is less exciting for listeners who will have heard the news. So the two proposals that were being put forward were: so one, a guarantee that both teams get the ball in overtime, and that then it would become sudden death after the second possession. The other proposal, which I think was being put forward by the Titans, was that it's kind of the same approach. However, in order to win it with the first possession, you need to score a touchdown and have a successful two-point conversion. I think they will have opted for the Titans proposal. And if they've changed the rules, it will now be you need a successful two-point conversion to win the game on your first possession. No, actually, you are wrong. Uh, it is oh, wow. The rule is now uh, that they're adjusting the overtime so that each team is guaranteed a possession, but only in the postseason. Oh. See, I hate that. Because ultimately, that's what they did originally, right? With the rule about you couldn't yep. you couldn't win it with just a field goal. It means that long term, that is going to become the rule. So the their reasoning, it passed twenty nine to three and the votes. Um, their reasoning was partly due to some of the stats they had, where since the requirement for an opening possession touchdown started in two thousand twelve. Teams that won the coin toss won 50% of the time. However, that number has been up to 54% since the league shortened the time from 15 minutes to 10 minutes in 2017. So over the last five years, 54% of the time, the team that wins the coin toss wins, whereas 10 years, it's been 50 but this is the difference. But in, Let me finish. In the playoffs, it's, yeah, yeah, it's much more dramatic, yeah. right? So in the playoffs... Oh, sorry. Jeez. <laughs> since it was implemented in 2010, 7 of 12 overtime games have been won on the opening possession, and 10 of those 12s were won by the team that won the coin toss. Yeah. I mean, the issue I always have with this of having different rules in the postseason versus regular season. So if you're playing in the final week of the season which, you know, fundamentally a playoff scenario, like, you know, go back to say the, the Chargers Raiders playing in week 18 of the regular season. So your season can end on this one rule where basically they're admitting is slightly unfair, but then the following week they go, no, 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 that overtime rule isn't, isn't so fair. So we'll now let the other team get the ball as well. Yeah. And it's like, it's like when you get to those games too, you know, people always say this is basically a playoff play in game, you know, but it technically the NFL doesn't consider it a playoff game. It's still a regular season game. So you get regular season rules for technically like a playoff play in game. <laughs> yeah. 
And I understand it's about the wear and tear to the players. And if you had a team that was going to overtime, you know, six or seven times, which seems highly unlikely, but say theoretically that's going on, just that is an additional quarter of play being added on to all of their players. I, I understand from a health and safety standpoint why it makes sense to try and limit it. But in that case, just have them end in ties in the regular season. Like, I think that's the easy, just go, hey, in the regular season, it's a tie, but obviously you can't have a tie in the playoffs. So this is the rule for overtime in the playoffs. You know, it's like being in, say, in football and soccer, the same idea. Like a league game or a group stage game in the World Cup can just end in a draw. But then obviously now we're in the knockouts. We can't do that. So we play extra time and we play penalties. And to me, that would just be the more, if you're concerned about the health and safety aspect, just do that. And then it also avoids you of being in a situation where a team wins in circumstances that they couldn't have won in the playoffs. Any more quick fires? No. I mean, not many of them are very quick, but I think that's probably... Well, I guess I guess one final quick fire. I guess the World Cup qualifiers, oh, yeah. speaking of, just mentioned, pretty much wrapped up. I mean, some are yet to play this evening based on you know which continent we're discussing. But uh, the main takeaway is obviously Portugal and Poland on the European side of things. Uh, one, the North Macedonia's dream run to the World Cup came to an end. Uh, elsewhere, there was a big storyline coming out of uh, another qualifying region where Iraq went in today with a chance of qualifying for the World Cup. But unfortunately, results didn't go their way. So that kind of, you know, would have been an interesting story, obviously, with what the history in that country has been like for the last 20, 30 years. Um, and yeah, Olivier Giroud closing in on being France's all-time record goal scorer, which seems a little weird. He's now four goals away, I believe, from breaking Thierry Henry's record. I always find it strange where Olivier Giroud has been a very good player. With great hair. He's been a... He's a yeah, good player, good man. hair. <laughs> but again, his byline probably starts more with Olivier Giroud, extremely attractive, versus Olivier Giroud, very good at football. But Hey, I'd take either one of those. <laughs> oh, <laughs> sure. You know what? If I'm him, I don't care which one you put out first. <laughs> well, and you definitely... I mean, look, he's, he's another one of those people who sometimes he's the butt of some jokes in terms of what his career has been, but then, you know, it's been phenomenally successful. So, you know, who is really, you know, he, almost every professional footballer of the modern era would take Olivier Giroud's career over theirs. But it just seems strange to me. As good as he's been at times, he is mostly serviceable. And, you know, you're talking about a player who's, managed to go through the entire France's entire world cup campaign when they won the world cup, right. Without getting a shot on target. So I think that's kind of an indication. A lot of that's because he does, he puts in the hard yards. He does a lot of the kind of work that goes into allowing other players to do their thing. You know, there's, but it will be strange to have him as the all time leading goal scorer in France when he clearly isn't the best goal scorer. If you see what I mean. He's not the most gifted goal scorer. Yeah. He's just managed to kind of grind out this career. Yeah. And I guess getting back to the World Cup qualifiers, um, they end 
tomorrow, I believe, is the last day. So North and North America's um, group stages ends tomorrow. So after that, the yeah, World Cup and the will US, be set. It looks as if the USA will qualify, barring a sort of nightmare. Barring a loss of Costa Rica by, I think, it was more than six goals. Yeah. <laughs> Something like yeah, that. So Yeah. Yeah. Kind of unimaginable, but would be hilarious just because of the um, looking at oh. looking at American football fans on Twitter and social media, they're starting to talk themselves in, you know, like as soon as they start to get a little bit of success, suddenly it's, oh, well, you know, look at all these talented young players. How dangerous will we be at a World Cup? Which European sides are we better than? You know, you can already hear. I know, I know. We've gone through it, Eddie. We don't need to hear it. You can hear the talk coming. <laughs> so it would be kind of funny if it just all ended in calamity with them losing 7-0 to yeah. Costa Rica. But it won't happen. Well, they did thromp Panama the other day. I actually watched the first 30, 40 minutes of that match. They did. They and, looked, and look, they looked good. overall, it's as much as I like to, to make fun of American soccer fans it will be good to have the usa back at the world cup just because you know from a neutrals perspective a little bit more interesting to see the usa play versus say panama in a world cup which we've had in in recent times so so let me throw one quick fire prediction out of you without knowing what any of the groups are going to be is the over under of the U.S. making it out of the group stage even or higher? And which way? Um, I think it would be over even odds that they make it through. So I think it's, you know, they could get, they could be, get lucky with their draw. But I would say, assuming they're, you know, they're going to get either two European sides in their draw or, Say a you know a good a decent to good European side and, and a good South American side. I think they'll definitely two to one. Two to one might be strong, but I don't want people to hold it against me when the USA make the quarterfinals because every year at the World Cup, one or two surprising teams make it to the quarterfinal rounds. A little bit like our topic of you know making it to the elite eight isn't that big of a deal so the usa making it to the quarterfinals would be a very good achievement i think that would be a very successful world cup from their perspective but i don't want someone to say as if i dismissed it as being out of i think almost any team going into the world cup could make the quarterfinals there's only one or two i mean i'd be pretty surprised if qatar make the quarterfinals but aside from that and if the usa end up in qatar's group good for them but uh, yeah, aside from that, I think pretty much every team going into it could think if we can sneak through the group and we can win one knockout game, it's not crazy. So according to FIFA rankings, USA is ranked 13th. So they would have to shimmy up that list a little bit, but they they are helped out by the fact that Italy... <laughs> FIFA, FIFA rankings are such a nonsense. And again, yeah. it touches on a topic we discussed last podcast in terms of you don't want to be in a situation where it's almost impossible to be highly ranked if you're not in Europe or South America, but fundamentally that kind of feels the right way. And again, it it goes back into that. You'll have Americans, football fans, soccer fans talking about how high they are in the rankings. I mean, the fact that you have a team ranked 13th who didn't even make it to the last world cup. I, I almost feel like 
in a four-year cycle, it should be impossible to be ranked in the, say, the top 30 if you didn't even make it to the previous World Cup. I mean, you also have teams like Poland who are ranked 24th and ahead of them is Senegal, Peru, Iran, and Chile. But most of those teams that you just named were at the last World Cup. I mean, Poland are consistently at major tournaments, right? So that's, and Senegal won the African Cup of Nations. So they won their continental tournament. And then on top of it are consistently at World Cup. So they should obviously be the highest ranked African side. So that doesn't bother me. I'm just saying Poland being the last, because they just qualified, right? As last in. Yeah. But they were at the Euros and they were at the last World Cup. So it, it, even though they've not had a great group qualifying stage in the World Cup, it seems more natural. But yeah, I don't know. FIFA rankings, I, I don't know how you fix FIFA rankings because basically the idea I'm... You eliminate them. <laughs> in a way, you don't really need them. But in a way, the, the scenario I'm imagining, it would just be consistently the top 10 would be exclusively European and South American teams. But realistically, if you want to say who are the best 10 teams in the world, I'd be interested to have someone have a serious argument with me about when there have been when there's been a team not from Europe or South America that's been in the top ten in the world. That would be I know Pele. Well, I mean, us an in fairness, nine out of the ten are top ten. Who's who's the only Mexico I mean, is number that's nine? That's a joke. That's I mean, just it's a joke. But I mean, it also let me even extend it. Top fifteen should be exclusively European and South American. Then you only also have the U.S. then. I might even go top 20. Oh, it actually have yeah. Okay. I might even go top 20. Um, then you have Senegal at 20. So that's not bad to only have three. I can, I can just about swallow that. But... <laughs> but <laughs> And look, I know it's going to upset a bunch of people and they're going to tell me I'm wrong and there's going to be a lot of people telling me how good this Senegalese team is at the moment. Uh, it's a very popular side. It's one of those things that like f- people love to talk about how good Senegal are and how they are, you know, should be more than dark horses for the World Cup. They should be legitimate considered sort of legitimate contenders to and expectations should be that they do make it to the semifinals or whatever. But I know that push comes to shove, that's not going to be the case. Well, let me just tease apart these FIFA rankings. One last uh, question. Should Belgium be ahead of England? I mean, should they be ahead of them in terms of... According to FIFA rankings, Belgium is number one. Uh, again, I, I have a tough... Brazil is two, England is three. I have a tough time... I kind of think that if you win the World Cup, you should be world number one for the next four years. I sort of think it should be like holding a title belt almost. And I again, I understand that's not in the interest of FIFA with their rankings because that sort of downplays the significance of everything that happens in between those four years. But it's an argument can be made that Belgium, when they're fully fit, are the best team in the world. I, I certainly think Belgium, their their best possible 11 is probably better than England's best possible 11. So I have no uh, qualms about uh, Belgium being ranked higher than England. But it does also confuse me, and I know that people would be able to explain it. 
it does slightly confuse me that you're talking about an England team that made the semifinals of the last World Cup, which is the same stage that Belgium made it to, and then who made it to the finals of the Euros, which is further than Belgium made it, and yet Belgium are ranked higher than them. That becomes a little bit difficult to wrap my head around, and I know that they're the point system is in place and that it obviously makes sense because, you know, FIFA aren't sort of adjusting the numbers, but that seems wrong to me in terms of how their point system is working. They are putting too much weight on matches that are, have less significance. So I guess the answer to that question is both yes and no. All right. Well, yeah, I guess I'll talk to you later. See you.